Okay, this afternoon we're going to be looking at the third of three offices. You may recall that when we started this series on, on the doctrine of Christ, the person and work of our Savior, um, we come to the culmination as we look at his offices, the threefold offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And I've made frequent use of John Flavel, the Puritan, uh, on this subject. It's, it's clearly one of the best treatments I've ever seen, just a remarkably clear and, uh, and helpful uh, treatment. So you'll, you'll see uh, numerous instances where I'm referring to John Flavel. But as we look at the doctrine of Christ as king, um, remember that this bears upon uh, his redemptive work. Uh, and all of these offices bear on his redemptive work. So on page one of your notes is a quotation from John Flavel's work on the offices of Christ. And it's very helpful, I think, in enabling us to look at the way these offices interact with each other. If he had not, as our prophet, revealed the way of life and salvation to us, we could never have known it. And if we had known it, but he, as our priest, had not offered up himself for us, we could never have been redeemed virtually by his blood. And if we had been redeemed, but he, as our king, had not applied the purchase of his blood to us, we could have had no actual or personal benefit by his death. And in summary, what he says is what he revealed as prophet, and that's the essence of his, the office of prophet, is his revealing to us by his word and spirit all that we need to know for our salvation. He revealed his, his prophet. He purchased his priest. And, of course, you realize that's by offering himself once as a substitute uh, for us, as a sacrifice to satisfy the righteous judgment of God. And what he revealed and purchased as a prophet and priest, he applies as king. The way he, the, the Lord and Jesus, the Lord Jesus uh, exercises his kingly office in the Reformer's um, said this in the in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that uh, as as king he exercises that office by subduing us to himself and by ruling and reigning over us and subduing all his and our enemies and that's a good summary but he begins by subduing us to himself and as we work through this opening section by John Flavel on the way that Christ subdues us to himself I think it's helpful for us to consider all of the ways in which we're brought into a saving relationship with Christ. Uh, because it, it's not incumbent, it, there's nothing in us that would incline us uh, whatsoever to respond to Christ unless he draws us, uh, unless he's drawn by the Father, John six forty four. We, we went through that in another study. But he literally conquers us and he reigns and rules over us. And so there is this dimension that he exercises his kingly office by subduing his elect to his spiritual government and ruling over them as his subjects, ordering all things in the kingdom of providence for their good. And the definition of providence is God's holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And, and he does that. We, we often don't see the way in which God exercises his providence over us, but he, he does it constantly over all of his creation, and he does it in a way that's holy, wise, and powerful. And he, he governs each of his creatures. We are his. And he reigns and rules over us, ordering all things in the kingdom of providence for their good. And you should think of Romans 8.28, when I make a statement like that, or when Flavel makes that statement, because we know that God causes all things to work together 
for good for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So there's nothing accidental in, in the way that God dispenses his sovereignty over us. All of it is orchestrated in a way that brings him glory and brings us good. Everything that takes place. But, uh, but we are the subjects of his kingdom. And there's two aspects to the kingship of Christ. There is this spiritual and internal aspect where he rules over our hearts. And then there is this external and providential aspect where he guides and orders all of his creation in, in a way that uh, is pleasing to him. And of course, this leads to his millennial kingdom, but it also has other aspects. But uh, when we talk about the external and providential kingship of Christ, we'll be touching on this at the end of the, the section, but, uh, but that's where we get into Christ reigning as millennial king. But he exercises his, his throne uh, or occupies his throne in our hearts by conquest. I remember earlier I said that the, the definition of the kingship of Christ is the way that he subdues us to himself and he reigns and rules over us and conquers all his and our enemies. And so think about this as we work through this about what it is that took place in your life as a believer when he literally brought you into a saving relationship. It was entirely his work. There was nothing in you that was inclining your heart to respond. But he, the elect are his by right of donation. And what Flavel is saying there is that by donation, all that the Father gave to the Son, he purchased. And we, we discussed this earlier when we looked at the design of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? He died for those whom the Father gave for him. And he, he died not just to make salvation possible, but to make salvation actual. He actually purchased the salvation of those whom the Father gave to him. So that we are his by right of donation because the Father gave to the Son all those that he had chosen to, to bring to a saving knowledge of himself. And Jesus lost none. He purchased every single one that the Father gave to him. None are lost. And by redemption, he died for all of those whom the Father had given to him. But Satan has his first possession. And if you're in any, any doubt about that, I'm just going to read Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where the scripture says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the Father's work and actually moving us from one tyrannical rule to a benevolent rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I say a tyrannical rule, you need to understand as an unbeliever, you were a subject of Satan the one who hates your soul. And the scripture says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Satan had first ground, so to speak. Now, all of this is under the sovereignty of God. We, we recognize that. But your, your estate as an unbeliever was you were the subject of one who literally hated your souls. And Jesus came to conquer that and to remove you out of that tyrannical rule and to move you into his kingdom. And when the time of recovering the elect arrives, he sends forth his armies to subdue them. Maybe you've never thought about that, but think about all that's taking place in one of God's children coming to him. Christ sent forth the armies of prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers under the conduct of the Spirit. Now what you should be thinking of when, when, you, when Flavel says that is Ephesians 4.11. And this is my favorite verse when someone said, what's, what's the mission and the, the direction of Christ Fellowship Bible Church? I said, well, our template is very, very simple. 
God gave apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to a mature man. So these are the agents that God has ordained so that the, the, that the body of Christ might be actually implemented and purchased, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, etc., all under the conduct of the Spirit, because we know that regeneration has to take place before someone will respond to the gospel. Without the Holy Spirit, and who sent the Holy Spirit? Well, the, the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. He, he proceeded from the Father and the Son to, to accomplish the, the saving work that had been determined in all eternity past. Remember, there was this undertaking in, the, in our triune God in eternity past to save and elect seed. And that, that purpose is actually being fulfilled before us even now. There are men and women and boys and girls coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. But the armed with the two-edged sword, the word of God. And he causes armies of convictions to trouble them on every side. Do you remember when you came to Christ? It was not just an intellectual decision. Your conscience was awakened to the fact that you were guilty before a holy God. You recognized that you were lost. I, I remember this very specifically in the summer of 1971. Someone gave me a track called This Was Your Life, and it had to do with the great white throne judgment. And, and it's by Chick Publications. I'm seeing some smiles out there. Some of you folks have actually seen that. It, it's, it's entirely biblical, and it, it, it will scare the you-know-what out of you. It did for, it did for me. It, it did for me. And I, I came to, to realize that, that my destiny was eternal hell because I was outside of Christ. And, and it, it showed that God is a judge. I, and I had just been moving along very happily in my way. But, but I, suddenly I can resonate with exactly what, what Flavel is talking. He causes armies of convictions to trouble them on every side. You, you know that the Spirit came to convict men of sin and righteousness and judgment. And why did he do that? to convince them of their need for a Savior. The role of the Spirit is to give men and women and boys and girls that are, that are chosen ones of God a new heart. Without that, there would be no response whatsoever. So you can see that the Son is, by his kingship, doing exactly what the Father gave him to do, and that is conquering the souls of men and women in concert with the role of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully you're seeing how these offices all fit very well together. And then Flavel goes on to say, by these convictions, he batters down all their vain hopes. What, what are our hopes? Self-righteousness, indifference to eternality denial of, the, of any kind of an afterlife, just a, a satisfaction with this world, all of those vain hopes are crushed when, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He was for me, and I, I know if you're truly born again, you know that that took place in your life, that you relinquished any and all hope of heaven apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit of God does. So top of page two. When Christ sits down before a soul and summons it by his messengers, it is a time of great distress. Oh, I can say amen to that. Absolutely. It was not just a, 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 an intellectual decision. No one who's truly born again simply said, yeah, this makes sense. I think I just need to do this. You know, this, this is better than the alternative. No, I mean, if you're truly born again, you know that you came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you recognize that you needed to do something <clears throat> right then. You, you knew that you needed to, to, to bow the knee before King Jesus and acknowledge your guilt. And that's exactly what, what Flavel is describing. Towers of carnal pride and walls of vain confidence must be undermined by the gospel. He has a very colorful way of describing it. 
Now the merciful king, whose only design is to conquer the heart, waves the white flag of mercy before the soul, giving it hope. That's the essence of the gospel. You know that? I've used this analogy many times, and I I see it in print by Flavel. The, The essence of the gospel is imagine yourself on a field of battle, and it's you, and you alone. And you look across and, and two or three hundred yards out, you see this great army and they're all armed to the hilt and you've got nothing. And, and you know that, that, that you've got absolutely no hope. And then you see an emissary coming over with, with a, a white flag and he, and he gives you terms of surrender, absolute surrender. You don't negotiate with the, other, with, with the, the forces on the other side. There are no terms of negotiation. It's not a bargain. It's absolute surrender. And what's happening when the gospel is presented is God is, is offering you terms of surrender. And you acknowledge, I have absolutely no hope. I will be judged. I will be destroyed. And I will be not literally destroyed because hell is eternal. But I, I have no hope whatsoever. But God is offering terms of surrender. That's the essence of the gospel. It's more than just accepting Jesus into your heart. It's saying, I'm lost. I'm absolutely lost. I've got no hope. And, and I thank you, God, for giving me terms of surrender. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to, to surrender to you, King Jesus. That's the essence of the gospel, and that's the way that, that Flavel is describing it. And so the soul is one to Christ, he, and it comes to Christ by free and hearty submission, desiring nothing more than to come under Christ's government. That's, that's what takes place when someone comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. So under the exercise of Christ's rule, how does he rule? And, and, and Flavel goes on and he says, first of all, he puts a new law in our hearts. And, and now we must be under the law to Christ. This makes obedience a, a pleasure. Who, who are the friends of Christ? The ones who follow his commands. We, we don't follow his commands in order to become a believer. You understand that. There, there is no legal way of becoming a believer by simply obeying God's commands. But once you are truly converted... The law of God is something that you find desirable. How do I know that? Because Psalm 1, for instance, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And that should be your testimony if you're truly born again, that you want to honor your king, that his his law is, is pleasing to you. Now, it's not always that way. Romans 7 tells us we have a battle with indwelling sin, and, and we, we sin regularly, sadly, but we do, every single one of us, in, in thought, word, and deed. But the disposition of a truly converted person is that they want to honor the king. They're not in rebellion anymore. That's what Romans tells us, that, that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were without hope, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. And we're not at war with God anymore. We want to honor him. We recognize him as king. We recognize him as the sovereign over our lives. It makes obedience a pleasure. And Christ's yoke, Flavel said, is lined with love so that it never wounds the necks of his people. That The metaphor that he's using is, is Matthew 11, 28, 29. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy. The, 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 it, it, Jesus rules us not in a tyrannical, domineering way, but, but in a, a, a shepherd's way always desiring for us and always accomplishing for us that which is good and perfect. And it doesn't always come in a way that we recognize. It doesn't always come easy and often it involves sacrifice. 
but, but everything that he does as he rules us is, as Flavel says, his yoke is lined with love so that it never wounds the necks of his people. His commandments are not grievous, First John 5. So he puts the law of God in our hearts and, he, and we, we submit to him. Secondly, and this is, you know this from Hebrews 12, he, he, he does what? He, he, he chastens us, he corrects us, he takes us to the woodshed when we need for that to take place. Our fathers disciplined us to seem best to them, but our Heavenly Father does what? He chastens us, He corrects us, and it is good. That is such a mercy of God that He does not let us continue on our sinful ways. He always is, is bringing us into subordination to His rule, and He does that by, by chastening us in, in various ways. But it's, the purpose is for correction, not destruction. Third, Christ restrains His servants from iniquity. He withholds us from courses that our own hearts would follow us. We still have indwelling sin, top of page three. Our soul is bent to backsliding, but Christ in his tenderness keeps us from iniquity by removing the occasion or helping us to resist the temptation. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it also. We always are provided with a way of escape, and that's a mercy of God. We don't have to succumb to temptation. We do, but, but God provides us a way so that we can live rightly before him, and that's a, a mercy of God that he does because that's his rule over us. He's providing us a way to honor him by obedience and not rebellion. And so that's, it's in our desire, ultimately, if we're truly converted, is to honor Christ, to, to please him. And it grieves us if we're truly converted when we sin against him. Our, our, our soul is grieved when we, when we uh, are exercising sin against our, our righteous Savior. If we're indifferent towards sin, that's, that's a cause of great concern for the condition of your soul. We should never be indifferent towards sin. Sin should always be a grievous experience in us. We recognize it. And what do we do about that? Scripture tells us that we say the same thing about it that God says. We confess our sins. That's what the word confession means, is literally to say the same thing. We recognize that it offends a holy God who gave his own beloved son to die for us and and pay our, our eternal debt on our behalf. And he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fourth, Christ protects us in ways that do, do not allow a relapse from him into a state of sin and bondage to Satan. That's talking about the eternal security of the believer. Jesus said in John 10, no one snatches them out of my hand. None who, who was purchased by Christ will ever be lost. We would be lost if it were up to us, but, but we don't hold our own salvation. Who holds us? Christ holds us in his, in his hand. And no one can snatch us, John 10, verse 28 and verse 30 says this. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. No one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. How do we know that? Because Jesus has purchased us by his own blood. And we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into, into the kingdom of, of his beloved Son. We're preserved in Christ, Jude 1. Fifth, he rewards our obedience and encourages our sincere service. And sixth, he pacifies all of our troubles and commands when our souls are tumultuous. And the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God will, 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 will occupy your minds in Christ Jesus. It will garrison your heart like a, like a, a commanding officer watching over a fortress. That the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he does. He gives the souls of his children rest, and he gives them comfort. And, and we, sub we submit ourselves to his righteous rule. And those are his kingly acts. And, and so what do we do with all that? And, and the typical Puritan treatment of, of doctrine would be they would, they would explicate, as I said, the doctrine, and they would say they have just a countless number of uses. Uses are applications. And so when you read a, a Puritan sermon or treatment, it'll call it uses, uh, but, but lessons. And the point that Flavel is making at the bottom of page three, and this is very important, we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we, we really are rightly related to God, but we need to make sure whose government we're under. This goes back to Colossians 1. Whose, whose kingship are you under? And who is king over our souls? And so there's some good questions that he, that he asks, uh, and these are on top of page four. These are good diagnostic questions. Do we obey Christ? We don't obey Christ to gain a place in heaven other than submitting ourselves to him and, and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I have no hope of heaven other than you. Your shed blood is my, my, the price that, that needs to be paid for a place in heaven, and I, I'm trusting in that and that alone, not my own righteousness. So our obedience is not how we gain salvation, but it's the, the, the ever-present corollary of salvation. Obedience is the nature of a believer. Are we obeying Christ? It's a mockery to give Christ the empty titles of Lord and King while we give our real service to sin and Satan. Now, there's a quote later, and it, this deals with this so-called lordship controversy that took place some years ago, and, and the gospel according to Jesus was kind of the epicenter of this discussion that took place. Can Jesus be Savior without being Lord? And the answer is no, of course. But really, this would have been a very simple exercise to resolve if people had just considered the fact that, that Jesus can't be king if, if, and, and not be Lord. It, it, he, he is prophet, priest, and king, always, for a believer. That doesn't mean that we will obey him as, as often as we should. It doesn't mean that we will obey him as wholeheartedly as we should. We won't because we battle indwelling sin. But the disposition of a truly converted person is that they will obey Christ. John 14, 21 says that. Second, do we have the power of godliness or a mere form of it? And the point that Flavel's making here is a truly converted person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit. We're not perfected by the flesh. We're not saved by the flesh, but we're energized by the indwelling Spirit of God. And, and so we have a power that we never had before. We, we were never enabled as unbelievers to do things that, that honored Christ. And now, as truly converted people, we're a new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. And we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and he's the one that, that gives us the power to, to live for, for the Lord Jesus. Third, do we have a special saving knowledge of Christ? All of his subjects are translated out of the kingdom of darkness. Now, the point that he's making here, I've highlighted it, is do we see our condition how sad, miserable, and wretched it is by nature. Do we see our remedy as it lies only in Christ and his precious blood? I can say yes. I, 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 I can look back and, and say yes. I Honestly, I know how greatly lost I was. I, I know that I had no hope of heaven. I, I know when the Lord Jesus convicted me of my sin, when the Holy Spirit gave me a new heart, that I, that I, 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 I see where I was. And, and that, the only reason I looked at my life and, I, and I, I saw my lost condition was it was a mercy of God. It was the Holy Spirit granting me a new eyes, a new heart. 
regeneration. A truly saved person can look at their life and say, praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Praise God that you've delivered me from the domain of, of darkness, that you've moved me out of, of the, the domain of darkness. You've rescued me from a hopeless estate. You've taken a, a, a lost, wretched person and you've done something I could never have done for myself. A, a truly saved person can say that. And fourth, that we delight to associate with Christ's subjects. And the point that he's making is, is he says, I know the subjects of both kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Satan, are mixed and we cannot avoid the company of sinners except we go out of the world, but our delight is to be with the saints. We love to be with the saints, don't we? When we gather on the, on the Lord's Day and on other occasions, our, our delight is to be with God's people. Now, we're also supposed to be, as Paul says in Philippians 2, light shining in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, so we don't live cloistered lives. We don't live monastic lives. We're, we're out rubbing shoulders with those who need to know Christ. And we're, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're, we're always mixing it up with unsaved people, but we're not unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that. What fellowship does light and darkness have with each other? Where, where's, where are your real friends? If you're truly a converted person, your real friends are, are your brothers and sisters in Christ because they've been rescued right alongside you. And, and you know that you've got more in common with them than you've got, in many cases, with your own flesh and blood family. Some of you, you, you know that. That there's an intimacy and a kinship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ that is unique, and that's because you have a common Savior. That's the point that he's making. Fifth, that we live a holy and righteous life. If not, we may claim an interest in Christ as King, or we may presume to be the case, but he will never acknowledge our, our claim. Many will say to me on that day, didn't Lord, Lord, didn't I do various things? And he will say, depart from me, you wicked, I never knew you. That's Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. That's the most horrific thing possible. But if, are we living for Christ? Has is he, is he, is he changed our lives? Is he in the process of changing your life? No, you're not what you want to be, not, but you're certainly not what you used to be. And you see the difference between the two, right? You see that? We should walk as subjects of the king. That, that is so very important. Page five. So that's, that's the inward and um, personal aspect of the kingship of Christ. John Walford uh, excerpts from his wonderful treatment on the Lord Jesus Christ, the present work of Christ. And, and Walford makes a, a very helpful distinction. He says... Presently, and remember, the, the offices of Christ are exercised both in his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. His state of humiliation is his being born of a, of a woman um, and in, a, in a dark world, suffering the, 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 the experience of walking in the midst of a sinful world for 30 years or so, uh, being uh, tried and, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. That's his humiliation, his exaltation, as he, but yet he was resurrected and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But he is prophet, priest, and king, both in his incarnation and his exaltation. And so what's the present way in which Jesus works as king? We've talked about that as an inward experience, but what does it mean in, in terms of the outward or providential aspect? And, and Walford makes this comment that there are two distinct areas, his lordship over creation in general and his lordship over the church. Christ is head of the church, and so he's king over the church. 
This, this second to the last paragraph is very helpful. I, I have a number of friends who are amillennial and postmillennial. We, we, can, we can go out and have a good lunch together and have good fellowship with each other, pray with each other, encourage each other, but we would have a very different point of view when it comes to the, what the king is doing and what he will be doing. And, and so, but we, we, we don't get you know, difficult with each other. We recognize that, that once we're in heaven, we'll all this all get sorted out and we'll understand it perfectly. Uh, I, I suspect I've got a lot to learn. I know I do. But, uh, but I, at least here on earth, I've got a number of friends who have different points of view. But the, the amillennial point of view is, is that Christ in this present age is fulfilling all of the promises of his universal rule by, re, by means of the church and the preaching of the gospel. And Walford makes this very helpful distinction that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And what does that mean? You've got the Father's throne, and then you've got, as we'll see momentarily, the David's throne. And those are different. And we need to understand that the, 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 the fact that Jesus is seated, seated and co-reigning with the Father, that's the essence of what Walbert is saying, it is seated at the right hand of the Father, does not mean the same thing as occupying David's throne. So we'll, we'll unpack that as we go through. But... Um, Let's go over to page six. Walford is then sort of explaining what does it mean that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father? And there's been a tendency, I think he, he rightly says, to not give appropriate attention to all the scriptures that deal with the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so things get a little blurry, they get a little vague, they get a little... Um, uh, a little unclear unless we make these, these distinctions. But does the scripture say that Jesus is enthroned? And the answer is yes. But we need to say, what does that mean? And where is he enthroned? And how is he enthroned? And there are numerous passages. And Walward cites these, and I've actually reproduced most of them for you. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Where is he sitting? At the right hand of the Father. Until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. Until. Until. This is coming. Okay, not, it's, it's something to look. Matthew 22, quoting Psalm 110. Mark 12, quoting Psalm 110. Mark 16. So when Jesus, Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Well, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Christ Jesus is he who died, who was raised, and where is he? He is at the right hand of of God, the Father, who intercedes for us. In Ephesians 1, we we could go on and on. I've I've got all of these literally reproduced for you, and you can can read them. But on page 7, you've got all of these references, and they all say the same thing, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So go over to page 8. What that means when the scripture says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is that he is exalted to the highest possible place, that he is co-reigning with the Father. And, and so he is, he's not dispossessing the Father. It, it's it's uh, normally a, a throne has one place for one person to sit, so to speak. I'm using an earthly metaphor. They're not a bench, it's a, it's a throne. But in this case, the, the Father and the Son are co-reigning. And, and Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father and not dispossessing the Father of his sovereign rule, but the, the Son is literally right there with him, co-reigning with him. 
And so this glory, authority, and power is shared between the Father and the Son. And it is a heavenly throne. It is not the Davidic throne. And, and one of the assumptions among my post-millennial and amillennial friends is that Jesus is occupying David's throne. And, and with all due respect, he's not occupying David's throne because we have to understand what David's throne is. And as we look at the New Testament, there is not a single instance that can be found where the present position of Christ is identified with David's throne. The reality is David uh, that Jesus will absolutely, surely, unequivocally occupy David's throne. But does the scripture testify that he's now occupying David's throne? No. The scripture says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so... This second to the last paragraph is, is helpful. He says, The impossibility of David's throne and the Father's throne being one and the same is readily demonstrated by a simple question. Could David sit on the Father's throne? And the answer, of course, is no. Well, what's the nature of David's throne? David's throne was an earthly throne. It was over Israel. And so when we look at the nature of this throne, it was David suitable to sit on the Father's throne. No, only Jesus can co-reign with, with David, uh, with, with the Father, pardon me. And so you've got this distinction between seated at the right hand of the Father, enthroned, and David's throne, two, two entirely different constructs. Jesus will indeed reign from David's throne, but the, we need to make a distinction between all of these many passages that say that, the, the, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and what the scripture says about the nature of David's throne. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful of my, my millennial or post-millennial friends. That's not, not my intent whatsoever. I'm just trying to honor what at least my understanding and our understanding is as to the nature of these two thrones. So at the top of page 9, in, in all of the passages that we, we've seen that, that reference the Father's throne, where is the Father's throne? It's in heaven, right? Where is David's throne? It's on earth. And, and so they're both real thrones, but they're, they're, they're two different constructs, two different realities. And, and I've said a few times before, unequivocally, Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The time will come, absolutely, surely, bet your last dollar on this, that Jesus will occupy David's throne and where is David's throne? David's throne is on earth. The nature of David's throne is over Israel. It's over the earth. And, and so it's, it's important that we, that we see that. Now, sometimes, and this often is the case with my post-millennial friends, that they, 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 they have a, a view, and I understand it, that with the prop, propagation of the gospel that the, the world will become a better place. And, and that Jesus will reign uh, as he does. Uh, but their understanding of that is that this, the world will become a better place. At least that's my understanding of that expectation. The scripture is very clear that this world is not a good place and it's getting worse and worse. I, 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 maybe an amen or two out there, but, but, uh, but it, it's very obvious that this place is, is not a righteous place. Is the gospel going forth? Yes, praise God. It's touching lives in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But the world is not becoming a better place. The good news is that the gospel is being propagated and that souls are being saved. So top of page 10.
just to summarize this, where is Jesus now? In heaven, co-reigning with the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father. All of those passages on pages 6, 7, 8, 9, whatever in your notes, reproduce for you. The, The nature of that throne is a heavenly throne, the highest possible place, sovereign over all creation. Is Jesus now reigning? Absolutely, he is now reigning. Is, it, is the nature of his present reign the nature of occupying the Davidic throne? That's not my understanding. That's not the understanding of, the, of, of what we see taught in the scriptures. What we see in, in the nature of what the scripture teaches as to him occupying the Davidic throne is that it will literally be on earth and it will be a, a throne that will be located in Jerusalem, reigning over Israel and the nations. But that is yet to come. And that's why we're premillennial. That's why we believe in a literal millennial kingdom, a, a thousand year reign. So that takes us down to the bottom of page 10. And there's a friend of ours, Nate Holdridge. He's a pastor out in Southern California. Um, Diane and I met him. He's a good man, Calvary Chapel, Monterey. But he has a, a, a brief article. And, for us to unpack the nature of the millennium in about 10 minutes is, is not a realistic proposition. So I, I, this, that's why I intentionally selected a very brief rendition of what the characteristics of the millennial kingdom are. Number one, it's a thousand years. How do we know that? Because in Revelation 20, verses 2, 3, 5, 6, and 7, six times, the, the scripture says that the reign will be for 1,000 years. Now, I've had conversations with my amillennial friends, and, and they say that's just a figurative number. It's kind of a round number. There's no reason. It is, it is a nice round number. It's, it's not 1,001. It's not 998. It, it is kind of a nice round number, but it's the number that God in his providence dictated for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and so there's no reason contextually even though it seems like a nice round number to take it any differently than exactly what it says, any more than 144,000, 12,000 for every tribe of, of Israel. So in God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired all the writers of Scripture so that every jot and tittle of what they wrote is exactly what he wanted. And, and so we, we have no reason contextually to see 1,000 years as any different than literally 1,000 years. Well, the nature of the millennial kingdom is described in great detail in the Old Testament. This was an expectation, and I'm going to give you just kind of the highlights, and then we'll, 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 we're not going to go through a definition of the millennial kingdom today, but I'm just giving you sort of a, a flyover. But the expectation was clearly articulated in the Old Testament, and Jesus did nothing to, to shake the expectations when he came. He didn't say, no, no, it's not going to be on earth. It's, it's not going to be in Israel. It's, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be, it, it, there was nothing that Jesus did during his ministry that, that caused the, his followers to look at the, the expectation of the millennial kingdom any differently than what they had been taught to expect in, in the Old Testament. But number one, Christ will visibly reign. So I'm just on page 11, I'm just going to hit the high points. In Isaiah 2, and there's other passages that, that refer to this as well, but in Jerusalem, Zion, Jesus will reign. Number two, and this is a, a glorious thing, that the church will reign with him. Well, how's the church going to reign with him? Well, we're going to come back with him. He's going to take us to be with himself, and we're going to return with him, and we're going to reign with him. The church will reign with Jesus. 
Number three, this is a very exciting aspect, and that my, my Jewish friends, uh, believers, anyway, Jewish believers are, are super excited about this because they're, a lot of their friends, their, their trusting will ultimately come to a saving knowledge of Christ. There's going to be a time of great revival among the Jewish people. Absolutely. I, 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 we've never seen anything like this, but there will be a time of great revival among the Jewish people. The spiritual life will come to Israel. And, and there's going to be countless Jewish people who will look upon him whom they have, uh, Zechariah 12.10, wounded, and they will mourn over him as for an only son. And, and the, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and new life and belief in new hearts and regenerate countless Jewish people. And, and it's, it, it, Israel will be in a place of prominence in, in the millennial kingdom. Number four, top of page 13, spiritual life will come to the nations. And it won't just be Israel that will be impacted. There will be changes in human life. Um, and and it, it will affect all of the nations. Uh, Micah chapter 4 uh, touches on this. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, that's the nature of what will take place in the millennial kingdom. Fifth, Satan will be bound. He'll be released at the end of this period, but he will be bound for a thousand years. And, and still there will, be, there will be sin. And you say, how can that be? But there, there, there still will be sin. There will be a revolution at the end of this period, and it will be suppressed. It will be completely destroyed. But Satan will be bound for a thousand years and ultimately cast into the lake of fire. Top of page 14, there will be enormous changes in the earth. The topography of the earth will be changed in ways that, that we can't even imagine. And yes, there will be climate change, and it will be the best possible version of climate change that you could ever see. And, it, and God will ordain it, and it will happen. Believe me, climate change is coming. This last part about uncorrected Jewish expectation is just a point that I was making a little bit earlier, and that is that the, the Jewish people had been steeped, and appropriately so, in the Hebrew Scriptures, as they call the Old Testament. That was their Bible. And there's countless passages in the Old Testament scriptures about what the nature of the millennial kingdom is like. Not with the same degree of specificity that we have in the New Testament, but, but certainly characteristics about peace and about life coming to Israel and, and about regeneration and about the, the, the reign of, of uh, David's seed on his throne forever and ever and ever. And, and so you've got all of this, and there was nothing that was... Uh, countered by the Lord Jesus. That's really the, the essence of what this last point is all about. And, and so these prophecies in the Old Testament will be literally fulfilled. They, they will literally be fulfilled. And none of them will remain, are being fulfilled in our day. Uh, this looks forward to a future time. So I haven't really done justice in a discussion, discussion of the Millennial Kingdom, but, but in the time that I've got today, I wanted you to know that when we talk about Christ as king, he presently reigns as king, and he subdues his people to himself. And that's the, the personal and inward aspect. And he presently reigns in heaven, co-reigning with the Father in his providential reign over all of creation. 
but that would be incomplete if we didn't very specifically say that a time of physical reign on earth during a millennial kingdom, we cannot talk about the kingship of Christ without giving appropriate attention to the millennial kingdom. So I gave you at least a mention of that. And if I know for a fact that, um, that there's going to be uh, among the men, if, if, if you guys want to plug in on this Wednesday Bible study, our, our pastor is going to talk about the characteristics of the millennial kingdom, right? I'm getting a nod back there. Okay. So you guys, at 3, three o'clock on, on Wednesday afternoon, we're going to be going through the, the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. And, um, and the women can ask the guys, what did you learn? You can, and they can, they can ask. But or we've covered this in our doctrine section, but it really deserves more, more full treatment. So that's a flyover of what it means that Christ is king, both in his estate of humiliation and his estate of exaltation. And if you're a believer, he's your king, and you live a life of subordination to him and submission to him, and you take up your cross daily and you follow him wherever he would lead because he owns you. He, he's the best, most benevolent, perfect king that you can ever have. He loves you and he died for you, and he holds you in his hand, and no one is ever snatched out of his hand.